The Guardian. If you're a fan of British independent cinema, here's an offer from Guardian Film you won't want to miss. Right now on guardian.co.uk, you can watch the award-winning film Skeletons starring Jason Isaacs and you can save 10% just for being a podcast listener. Skeletons is a story of a pair of travelling psychic detectives helping people remove the metaphysical skeletons from their closets. It's eccentric, heartfelt and very, very funny. The film costs just £3.49 to stream or £5.49 to download. And you can save a further 10% by entering the promotion code SAVEME. To check out the trailer and to find out more, head to guardian.co.uk forward slash skeletons. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, the BBC says sorry to the Queen over Gardner Gate. And... London listings mag timeout turns free. Plus, Jeremy Clarkson signs a new three-year megabucks deal with the BBC. And the man who executive produced Chris Evans' Radio 1 show gives us his verdict on the new man on the hot seat, Nick Grimshaw. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And joining me this week is, a, it turns out, it's a Sony award-winning special. It's um, Ollie Mann, who's one half of the Sony award-winning podcast Answer Me This... And it's the Sony award-winning producer of the Guardian Science Weekly, Jason Phipps, making his Media Talk debut, I think, Jason. I am, indeed. A pleasure to have you here. Are you going to produce the show from uh, beside the mic? I'm doing both. I'm in both places at this time. It's part of the, the cuts. Involved. That is why you have a Sony. He says, <laughs> speaking over your reference to cuts. <laughs> right, uh, Ollie, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, yeah. Not backseat producing like Jason, just, you know, just, just here for the ride. Front seat presenting yeah. or guesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I am not get ahead of us i am the presenter yes right well uh, as i am i should say this we start with the most serious queen related incident to hit the bbc since brian may played the national anthem on the top of buckingham palace and i didn't script that no way that's right the bbc security correspondent frank gardner broke royal protocol by revealing what the queen had told him in private not that she's gone off the archers but her views on radical islamic cleric abu hamza Ollie, this all happened during a live exchange on Radio 4's Today. Mm. And Jim Nocherty, the presenter, he was moved to describe the revelation as a corker. <laughs> it, it was indeed, but it turned out to be rather more serious than that. Well, yes, they didn't seem to have any sense at Radio 4 when it happened that this could be problematic. It then ended up leading the bulletin on Today, I believe, immediately after the revelation. A bit like on Andrew Marr, when you suddenly see what Ian Duncan Smith has just said being reiterated in the news. So they were all very excited about it, and then someone realised, oh, you're not supposed to do that, really, are you? You're not supposed to betray what the Queen said. I think most of the public don't know that such a convention exists, uh, and I think most of the public would expect that a a publicly paid-for journalist on hearing something from the Queen like that actually would be duty-bound to report it. I'm not sure the public would have expected the BBC to apologise, but uh, George Entwistle, perhaps, in his uh, was it second week in the job, may have been a bit more nervous than uh, the majority of the public. Yes, uh, Jason, they were pretty quick off the mark with their apology. There was no sort of uh, Saxgate-style sort of pussyfooting around. You know, the apology uh, and the letter to Buckingham Palace was fired off pretty quickly. Yeah, because, I mean, that's the thing you do not do, isn't it? The royals are, are a curse in the BBC. I mean, I heard it live as well. I mean, uh, to be honest with you, I had the same reaction. I, I paused for a second and I thought... Frank Gardner <laughs> chatting with the Queen, he's hardly a radical, 
so this kind of must be okay. Well, it was from 2008, wasn't it? So it was almost like one of his sort of set-piece dinner party anecdotes, I think, that kind of accidentally <laughs> came out on air, I think. Let, let's hear the clip. They didn't realise initially how influential and how dangerous he was in radicalising others who went on to commit things. And actually, I can tell you that the Queen was pretty upset that he was... Um, this man was... That, that there was no way to arrest him. She couldn't understand why... Um, why, why there must surely have been some law that he'd broken. Well, in the end, sure enough, there was. He was eventually convicted uh, and sentenced for seven years for soliciting to murder and racial hatred. That's a fascinating piece of information, Frank. Yes, I thought I'd drop that in, she well, told me. Drop it in? That's a, uh, that's a corker. <laughs> Isn't it? And Ollie, it was almost sense not just that he was revealing a, a, a sort of private conversation with the Queen there, but also that he gave away the source, which I guess is not really the, not entirely the done thing either. No, exactly. Well, but that's the bigger issue, isn't it? If he's got a source and it is in in private, and that source is not expecting it to be on the BBC, that's the issue. Not that it's the Queen. It's kind of similar to the issue over in Ireland, the publication of the Kate Middleton photos, where the editor of the Irish Daily Star was saying, but to us, she's just a celebrity. She's not our queen in waiting, and we print topless pictures of celebrities. I mean, the issue is, should you be printing pictures of topless people at all without their permission? Should you be giving details that sources have given you without their permission at all? The fact that it's the queen and everyone's got all prickly about the fact it's the queen, I think is kind of the side issue, really. Yeah, but let's hear a few few comments from uh, from the Guardian website. We had uh, Smuck who said, um, if the Queen shared something in private, off the record, it's unethical to go ahead and report what she said. It's not just uh, a matter of convention, uh, I paraphrase slightly. And 11 goalposts said uh, Gardner embarrasses himself hugely by his complete lack of understanding of the structure of government and democracy in the UK, especially in regard to the role of the monarch. And finally, Ivan Millett, who took the opposite view, which is... uh, Shows the divide of opinion on this, Ollie, as you mentioned earlier, who said uh, this is newsworthy and concerns a matter of public interest. It's not gossip and therefore there is no need to apologise. The problem for the BBC is that now the Queen will be loath to discuss anything with anyone, uh, even the archers, he, he didn't add. Um, Jason, where do you think this sort of stands in the, in the, uh, the league table of uh, BBC Royal Gaffes? You know, is it as bad as uh, Crowngate? Is it uh, more distressing than the coverage of the Diamond Jubilee pageant? I, I really, I'm, I have to declare myself, you know, obviously I come from Ireland and I'm, I come from a republic and therefore I always look slightly aghast at, at the machinations of, of the public dealings with the royal family and also how the royal family is reflected in the media. Um, and... I think it's very worrying. I mean, there's, it's, it comes at a time when there's a lots of freedom of information requests being put in to, to just get a glimpse at the protocol, not to get any sort of detail about the interaction between the royals and number 10. But just, it's Frank Gardner, who'd have ever thought that he would be this, you know, bring down, <laughs> he'd bring down the establishment. He's not an, a very anti-establishment figure. I really think the BBC have overreacted and I think they should have thought a little, little bit about it. Uh, you're right, you shouldn't reveal a source, but that implies that there was something deeply controversial. And in fact, everything he said was something that most people think up and down the country. Yes. And it was just a, a genuine wonderment at, at the legal process in relation to this particular figure who seems to be extraordinarily hateful, who's not very popular with the the Muslim community, uh, along with the, the, the everyone else. Um, I, I can't really understand why the BBC apologised. And I think, I think they'll regret it in time. It would have been more controversial had the Queen said, oh, I love that Abu Hamza and I want to invite him on my next <laughs> holiday. Uh, I think if, if we 
expected her to have an opinion, it probably would be the one that she espoused, you know, in this secret conversation. Well, we stay with the BBC for our second story of the week, and that was Jeremy Clarkson and his fellow Top Gear presenters, Richard Hammond and the other one. No, that's not fair, actually. I think James May's probably eclipsed Hammond in the presenting stakes, as he? Well, maybe that's a question for later. They've all signed a new three-year deal to present Top Gear, which is likely to earn Clarkson and the other ones mega bucks. In fact, millions. Ollie. Now, I know the Queen is a big fan of Top Gear. Mm. She told me. Did she? But this deal is significant in all sorts of ways, and, and not just if you don't like Clarkson. Well, it's significant because, and this gets very complicated, but it's significant because the BBC has bought now 100% of what was the distribution company for the rights to Top Gear worldwide uh, for all their sort of spin-off shows and selling the format and Jeremy Clarkson's corporate dues and his DVDs and everything. That's better six uh, for fans of this sort of detail. Sub-Zero Events is actually another company, is it not, which is owned in part by Better Six. It's really complicated setup in production terms, Um, but Clarkson had had his fingers in every pie uh, so he was giving himself his own pay rises to some extent in conjunction with the BBC. How that works, I have no idea. But it's good because I think it's actually going to clear up all of that uh, slightly dubious kind of behind the scenes, who's earning money out of a public format, etc. I mean, now it's quite clear that the BBC owns Top Gear and it's quite right that the three presenters, particularly Clarkson, should be well remunerated for that because it's so popular and it does sell all over the world and make loads of money back. I don't really see what the issue is, but uh, Guardian readers have found this quite controversial, I understand. Well, you know, there's, there's no, never any shortage of fascination in how much Jeremy Clarkson earns. Uh, and Better Six, which is this company uh, we were talking about, earned 15, more than £15 million in pre-tax profits last time out. And Clarkson earned uh, £2.7 million in the programme. Total earnings topped £3 million. I know you're still with me. Hope you're writing all this down at home. Uh, at home or on the train. What am I, from the 1970s? Um, I think one point of this, uh, I presume, I don't know this for sure, is that now that uh, Better Six is 100% owned by BBC Worldwide, perhaps Clarkson's earnings won't be so transparent in the future because there won't be um, you know, results published at Companies House. Perhaps it will be all in-house like the rest of the BBC's talent. Perhaps that's an issue here. Yeah, I think, I think it would apply. I mean, you know, there's confidentiality, it's confidentiality agreements around payments to talent. Um, there's no reason to reveal that. It's good that they've all done an, a deal because there's been fractions in previous years. Uh, they've kind of looked at each other and thought, why aren't we getting paid as much as the other person? Yeah, Hammond and May thought they should get a bigger slice of the profits. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so I guess the BBC, have t- it sounds to me like a tidier arrangement. And considering, you know, I hate the programme, but I, I, I also think it's an amazingly well-produced programme. Isn't, isn't it past its sell-by date? I mean, I, you know, I've stopped oh, watching it. You think so, you think so. I mean, seriously, every time I do switch onto it, I think... God, deja vu, and yet at the same time, there's the same sort of you know, throbbing crowd of admirers. The looks in people's faces in the crowd are just—it's just incredible. It's like a cult, and uh, <laughs> and and it is a cult, and it's a very profitable cult. And you know, it makes Ollie, did I see you in the crowd once in that hangar? No, no, you no. didn't. I, I'm a bit—I I find the slightly awkward scripted stuff well, awkward and scripted when I watch it. And to me, it's transparently awkward and scripted. I don't know why people don't find that an issue. Uh, I find the banter quite leaden. But it's fun, you know? And uh, if you want to have fun with cars, where else is there that no commercial rival has come up with a a proposition that betters it? And and I I actually think the argument was in the past that the BBC couldn't give Clarkson specifically more work because it would be seen as a threat to the competition that if Clarkson did a car podcast or, you know, a show for middle-aged men in jeans and jackets on Radio 2, that that would be an issue because he's got such a brand behind him and they should give the opportunity to the commercial world. No one's done it. 
no one's come up to that bar at all and i think i think the public should be getting more top gear for their money frankly i mean it's not really my thing either but why not give clarkson a radio two show why not give them a podcast which audience are they stealing they're totally running away with it more jeremy clarkson on the bbc well daily mail over to you uh, right, well, we leave Clarkson there. In fact, we leave the whole world of television behind, momentarily at least, as we turn our attention to print and London listings mag Time Out, uh, which went free this week after many, many years. I think even nearly half a century of, uh, of, of paid for Time Out. Ollie, what did you make of it? Uh, I was very sad, John, when I heard that Time Out was going free, um, which is the opposite uh, response to when I heard that The Standard was going free. You went, hooray! I went, hooray, because I only paid for The Standard about once every two months when I really, really needed to read a paper, where I was always quite happy to pick up a free paper on the tube and read it. Uh, and it was obviously going to be better than the London paper and London Light. With Time Out, I was a subscriber. I used to quite like the fact that I was in a small club of people that had access to premium subscription uh, you know, listings information. And inevitably, going free, going slimmer, having less information, more adverts, and more mainstream appeal, it's going to lose some of its left-field edge, it's going to lose some of the detail, and frankly, I don't want everyone knowing all the same listings information that I do. I want to go to the things the cool kids go to. (laughs) (laughs) And also, Time Out has this very rich history in TV criticism. Uh, and Time In was one of the reasons that I used to buy Time Out. And over the years, they've just completely thrown that away. Earlier this year, they tried to reduce Time In down to about four pages, and there was a massive revolt. So they made it big again for a while, but now again, it's back down to virtually nothing. And they've got rid of radio listings completely, which used to include one of the only places where people wrote about podcasts. Um, so yeah, I'm a bit annoyed about it, really. Isn't that the problem? Aren't all the listings that are in Time Out, aren't they actually online anyway? So were you actually in a club, or were you just in an exclusive print club rather than exclusive club regarding all that information? But it's work, isn't it? It's work trying to find these listings, and Time Out did it in one convenient, portable place. Of course it's good to be able to pick up more Time Out in more places, but I just cannot imagine how they're not going to be compromised. I mean, for example, over the last year they've been launching a kind of Wahunda-style Groupon discount voucher scheme, basically. Uh, You know, get a ticket for Wicked for £25 instead of 50 or whatever it is. How is it possible to marry that business model with giving genuinely unbiased critical reviews of theatre productions I just don't see how it is I can believe that the theatre reviewer might be able to give a production you know three stars instead of five they can't give it one can they if they've got this massive advertising relationship with the producers and that's fine but that's not what I wanted time out for Jason, I used to when I when I, in the olden days when I used to go for a day out in London, I used to buy my time out and then sort of ring various things I wanted to go and see, uh, and I used to buy it for the reviews and the listings. And now the listings are all but gone. Still got some reviews, but half that USP's gone by the by. What, what about you? Well, Were you I mean, a reader? I, I, what do you make of well, the Well, I have a, a deep affection for Time Out. I do. I mean, first of all, I just want to figure out in my mind, if, if Time Out go as a free sheet, I mean, how many free sheet vendors, hander-outers at tube stations will I have to negotiate? I'm already finding it difficult to get by Metro uh, stylists, stylists, very pushy, particular pushy vendors, I find. You know, get around that. Um, I, I don't know where I could, you know. It's like total wipeout, trying to dodge them. Yeah, eventually there'll be so many free magazine vendors at the, the entrance of the station, you won't be actually able to get on the tube. But um, I think it's a good move. I mean, to be honest with you, as an old radio producer, I swear to God, we, we lived on uh, by timeouts listings. We really did. They've always been so comprehensive for London specifically. I worked at BBC London. We were stumped. And, and to be really honest with you, their editorial was always pretty good, pretty punchy on the ball. And so it was. It, it's, it's a great publication. Uh, it did occur to me as the internet evolved over the years, I'm sounding really old, that, that 
timeout specifically faced a huge problem with listings. However, to be really honest with you, just like the back of Bolly there, you know, online listings isn't great for most things. I mean, you try and, I mean, God, try and find out when a TV, when a football match is on a particular station online and it takes about 20 clicks. I do think it has a real strength as a digital proposition. I actually have the app. Uh, I think the app's not brilliant, but pretty okay. I think they have a real future in in iPad uh, and mobile apps. I think they will make money. I think they know they'll make money. I think in-app push advertising is hitting home for the ad market, is making not a lot of money, but can make money in the future. And I think that's where they see their future lying. So, I mean, it makes total sense. I do I do think there's a tension between the listings, the commercial listings, and how advertising works with editorial. As you say, I'd like to see some honest reviews about some West End shows in the future when, like you say, there's run, they're running offers, some sort of digital offer through the app or, or offers on the free sheet. But um, it was inevitable. It was inevitable, I think. And, uh, of course, Time Out was the magazine that gave us the sixth star review, wasn't it? What was that about? <laughs> that was a bad decision, crazy, wasn't it? That was innovation. nice. Yeah. Well, Time Out is a print publication grappling with the digital future and uh, on this very same topic. Hope you appreciate the link. The Guardian's David Lee sparked no shortage of interest this week with his suggestion that the future of newspapers could be preserved with a £2 broadband levy every month. So if you pay £15 a month for your, your crappy broadband, as I do, uh, you now pay £17. Maybe you put a call in to see if they can improve it, but I haven't got round to that yet. Anyway, the money from this would be distributed to news providers in proportion to their online readership. So uh, he estimated The Guardian would get, I think I've got this right, the thick end of uh, £100 million a year, was it? Brilliant. And then you don't need a business model anymore. <laughs> well, Ollie, what do you, <laughs> you've hinted at your views on this, but what, what did you make of this suggestion? Well, I, I think the internet has to be about survival of the fittest. Google managed to find a way to monetize free content. Uh, and Other I've, people's free content, yeah. Yeah, well, yes, there's an argument to that, of course. But I just think, ultimately, you need to make your own money. You can't rely on a license fee, which is effectively what this is. It's another tax. If you're a business that originally set out to attract people commercially, uh, and if one model isn't working, i.e. print. Think about The Guardian, for example. I mean, looking back on it now, it seems to me that if instead of spending however many millions on going Berliner, uh, whatever that was, five years ago, if at that point they'd made all the redundancies they're making now and not made this lovely shiny building that we're sitting in and not gone Berliner and put all that money into an internet operation, they could run their current internet operation for decades. Uh, it doesn't cost as much. Everyone knows it doesn't cost as much to make that as a print newspaper. So I just, you know, it is ruthless and it is horrible and journalists can lose their jobs, but uh, that's sort of the way the technology is going. And I think a lot of this is kind of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, isn't it? Jason, what do you think? I mean, the problem is making, you know, turning digital, uh, as everyone knows, the problem is turning digital audiences into, you know, revenue. I don't think it's workable, but it hints at maybe something that is workable. And I think it it hides the fact that there's a much, much larger conversation, debate and decisions to be made around public service content and the license fee is kind of sucked into that. I mean, in Germany, for example, um, public service content, uh, the license fee is paid as a sort of a a fee on all the, the equipment that you buy to access it. So you'll see it. It's actually a little kind of symbol, a little sort of round horn symbol imprinted on the plastic on anything that you buy. And it, 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 it's a one-off fee that you pay, a contribution. And I don't know, maybe there's something along that line. They're going to have to find a way of recognising that you need to levy for public service content needs to be funded. It needs to be defined and it needs to be funded. And the licence fee doesn't really address it in, in the digital age. Also, another issue is, you know, while they prevaricate... Um, internet service providers are making 
masses of money. I mean, it's it's very profitable. When we talk about Google making money off free content, well, you could say that for all the major cable companies and telecom companies. And they're about to make a whack load more money because uh, streamed gaming is, is really starting to make its presence felt in the US. And I think you'll see that as a trend in the next year or two. And that means that there's going to be a lot of bandwidth sold uh, to serious gamers uh, across a series of big game products. And the winners out of that, maybe gaming companies will be winners, but, I mean, really the the winners will be telecommunications companies, you know what I mean? Uh, BT will be a massive winner out of that. But I I think, I mean, he he said in his article this is a very simple solution. It does seem sort of compellingly simple, just get the ISPs to charge more. But an even more simple solution, which it doesn't seem to me is being properly tried out, is just asking your readers to give you some money. Donations. Straightforward. You know, if you value what we do. Well, they do that in the US, don't they? And and certain, you know, Christian radio broadcasters over here sort of do that and say to their audience, you know, give us money, we're here for you. If you value what we do, pay for it. And actually people who are better, you know, more well off might pay £100 a month if they really like what you do and other people won't. No one's really given that a go. There's been all this talk about paywalls, but then that's very difficult to quantify as well. And then you have the issue about people doing direct debits for iPad editions so that you have to pay for a whole month rather than issue by issue. It's much more straightforward just to say, if you like what we do, give us some money. Well, time for an interesting Sorry, point here. just put in? Yeah. You've just given a quote on what The Guardian would receive. I mean, what would The Daily Mail online get? I, mean, I think probably similar or more, yeah. And they're already making profit, and it's and if newspapers, hardly a contribution to you know the betterment of mankind. And if newspapers like think, deserve a slice of the action, then yeah. you know, what about magazines? Then what about blogs? What about where do you draw the How line? You, you know? yeah. It seems a very crude uh, way to do it. If the proportionally more popular ones get more money, then the proportionally more populist ones will also get more money. So his argument about funding quality journalism doesn't quite stand up like that either, you could argue, I guess. Ollie and Jason, thanks very much. It was Nick Grimshaw's first breakfast show on Radio 1 this week, stepping into the shoes of Chris Moyles, who uh, gave up the gig after eight and a half years in the job. Let's talk to a man who knows all about launching the breakfast show on BBC Radio 1. It's John Revel. John, thanks for joining us. I know you tuned into the uh, to, to Nick's first show, or, or Grimmy's first show, I think I'm contractually obliged to, to call him. What, what did you make of it? Well, I listened to both days. Because uh, I listened to the first day out of kind of curiosity, I would have thought like most people in the business did. Then I listened second day to see how, how much it had moved on, if at all. You know, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be, if I'm honest. I, I was slightly concerned that he would, because the move coming down from an evening show to presenting the biggest show on the radio station is huge. And I, I think, you know, uh, Ben Cooper's taken a massive gamble with this. Um, and I'm not quite sure why he's done it, whether they were forced into it, whether Moylesy did jump ship or whether he was pushed. Nobody will ever know, I guess. But it did seem a, a little bit rushed. And the problem I initially found listening to uh, Nick Grimshaw was that it sounded kind of unrehearsed, that they really hadn't thought about it too much. Now, I know he's taking on this self-deprecating thing and oh, I'm not very good and I'm not very this and I'm not very that. My problem with all of this is if you tell people enough times that you're not very good, they will start to believe you. You know, Apple do not launch a new iPhone and say, it's not very good, but please go and buy it. So I think they were just a bit ill-prepared. It sounded a bit sloppy to me. It was a deliberate tactic there on their part to sort of play the, the underdog card. Um, and but uh, it is, there were lots it is, of... It's the biggest breakfast show in the country, John. This is the thing. You know, or one of the biggest breakfast shows in the country. You know, it's a national breakfast show, you know, with the 11 million listeners or whatever they had. I don't think you can approach it like that. I think if you're a small tin pot... 
uh, local radio station or a student station, yeah, then of course you can play that. But if you're a national broadcaster on, you know, one of the biggest stations in the country, I think you've got to go on and go, we are one of the biggest radio stations in the country, if not the biggest radio station in the country, and this is the biggest show on that station. I guess I guess maybe it was a, a deliberate attempt to sort of be the anti-Moyles in, in one sense. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, Moyles is quite acerbic and surly, isn't he? I mean, that's his shtick. That's how he is. The, the interesting thing I... I, I was that whilst they keep banging on about it, there's going to be a lot more music, I actually found he talks quite a lot. And, and, you know, just looking at the length of some of these links, you know, they're six, seven, eight minutes long, which is quite a, a, a lot of speech. And he tends to meander. So that's what makes me think he hasn't prepared. He's trying to wing it. And I think, you know, if you're an evening jock, you know, presenting music, then you can wing that because you're only just linking a few songs together. And, you know, you'll have a, a good thought in your head of what you're going to say. But on breakfast, it's a much, much bigger discipline. And you've really got to know what you're going to do. And you've really got to know what you're going to say. And, you know, as Chris always used to say, beginning, middle and end, beginning, middle and end. And I don't think he has. And I think he's trying to wing it. And he won't get away with that for very long. Grimshaw's not the first uh, evening DJ on Radio 1 to make the switch to breakfast, of course. Um, Mark Radcliffe and, uh, and Mark Riley did it in, in 97, following, um, well, following in the footsteps of Evans, of course. Uh, and again, they went on with the self-deprecating, we're not very good, we're a bit rubbish, how long are we, how long are we going to be here? And of course, they weren't there for very long. <laughs> and my worry is that if Grimshaw follows that, that, that tact, then he won't be there for very long. And I just think, you know, and it's not only his fault, the production team has to sit on this really quickly. And I don't know how experienced the production team are. But, you know, you've got to, you've really got to to think it through and plan it out and plan it out and, you know, know exactly what you're doing. And I always equate the breakfast show to uh, this insatiable beast, you know, that it wants constant feeding, constant attention and constant feeding. And it never, ever gives up. It's insatiable. Uh, And that in itself is very, very hard work. And even though they are going down the more music route, people still want entertaining. On the mainstream radio station, people still want entertainment with breakfast. I think we've all become, unless you're listening to, you know, Today program on Radio 4 or whatever, people just want a bit of entertainment. So even though they are going down the more music route, people still want a bit of entertainment in there. And that has to be carefully thought through, rehearsed, and delivered uh, in, a, in a really nice, tight way. Uh, interestingly, having said that, when you listen to him, he's now starting to bring in some of his production team on the air because it's a lot to carry on your own, you know, three and a half hours on the radio. And he, he's now starting to defer to other people and trying to bring them in. And, of course, that's what they don't want him to do. But unless they give him stuff to talk about and to present... Uh, you know, he's he's going to need uh, a crutch. He's going to need somebody to bounce off. It's very hard, very hard. John Revel, thanks very much. Listening to that interview were Jason and Ollie. Jason, John Revel said, not as bad as I thought it was going to be. What did you make of it? It's too early to tell. I mean, I really think he, he needs to be given a bit of time. I wasn't a massive fan of him in the evening. In fact, uh, to be honest with you, I was uh, when the hoo-ha around the, the replacement was ongoing and Craig James looked like it was in the bag. I really thought it was in the bag. I thought, wow. I was quite excited about that because I have a particular prejudice as a sort of radio producer, which is it's kind of rare and great to see young radio talent go all the way to the top and not be usurped by TV personalities who don't necessarily turn out to be bad radio presenters, but my God, it takes them a good while to get the hang of it. So you end up having to put grit your teeth for about six months to a year. And I wonder if that's 
kind of what's going to happen because no matter how much uh, experience uh, Grimshaw has, it's a it's a different beast. It really is an insatiable beast, as John says. When you get to breakfast, when you get up, it's it's fine to ha- be full of bubbles at six, seven, eight o'clock in the evening. You've chatted with your friends. You've had you know you've had a day to build up your little anecdotes and uh, but you, you turn up at sort of you know four or five in the morning and prep for a breakfast show is a completely different thing. Ollie, as Jason touched on there, they could have gone for a more mainstream voice like Greg James who does the drive time show but in Nick Grimshaw they've really gone for a, a Marmite character it's a bit sort of love uh, well he's a Marmite character no need to explain <laughs> um, yeah well but we have to be clear they're on a mission to lose listeners that's the point they're trying to get rid of people who are our age and above they're trying to get people who are 13, 14, 15 who love Justin Bieber and Harry Styles and Nick Grimshaw to tune in and hear what he got up to last night, who he's hanging around with, who his friends are, and what he thinks of the new One Direction single. And I actually can't think of a Radio 1 DJ in my lifetime at breakfast who's better at connecting with that demographic than Nick Grimshaw. The fact that we might have our doubts about him as a presenter is kind of the point. I've been kind of pleasantly surprised. I have to confess, I haven't listened to the show. I've listened to a few clips. As it happens, I was working with him on a TV pilot last week, and my heart sort of sank a bit. Get you. Uh, Yeah. Uh, My heart sort of sank a bit when they said that he was going to be the presenter. I'd never met him before. I'd only seen him on T4. And when I'd seen him on T4 kind of four years ago, I thought, well, you've only got this gig because you're good looking and you look the part. Uh, That's what what they said about me on this uh, podcast. (laughs) And then I was so surprised when he turned up and was genuinely really funny, really clever, really switched on, actually quite a pleasant person as well. And I think actually he could be quite refreshing. He's totally different to Moyles, but Moyles is an exceptional kind of totemic character. His point is to get basically teenage girls to listen in, and I think he'll succeed at that. And Jason, I mean, the key test for the BBC management will be how they sort of handle the declining audience, because we do expect it to go down. I mean, it would be amazing if it went up. You know, Chris Evans managed to improve on uh, Terry Wogan's audience, but that was a bit exceptional. So it will be a smaller audience, it will be a younger audience, but they've got to kind of stick by their guns and, and not panic if the if the radar, you know, does sink. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think Ben Cooper's been given sort of carte blanche to, to go and change the demographic, surely. Uh, not, not just the breakfast slot. I think there's changes coming right across uh, Radio 1, from what I've heard anyway. I'm not saying they'll do it radically or quickly but he will I think generally change the the listenership of Radio 1 and I think he's right in a way to do it particularly since the birth of Six Music I think there's an older demographic and there's more specialist music demographic that can sit better elsewhere uh, and have totally established their own brand and that makes sense so Radio 1 needs to really hit its own youth demographic with a little bit more effectiveness and I think I think it's a brave move in a way from Ben Cooper and it's clearly his first move I mean it's I, I, I suspect or I don't oh, know his, for a fact second move after biffing Scott Mills uh, yeah okay <laughs> but I mean I suspect that maybe Greg James was on the table uh, and he took him off uh, and put Grimshaw on on the table and so I suspect behind the scenes that this is this is his move very much seen as his move so he sort of he'll live or die by that in some senses as far as his the early days of his, his controllership. I think the other thing that's really good about it actually is I think it's really good for radio that people are talking about radio that the person who hosts the Radio 1 breakfast show is still the biggest gig in the country and everyone understands that uh, and John Revel was talking in those terms as well and all the newspapers wrote reviews about it and everyone took a picture when he turned up and I think the way that the team at Radio 1 have built around that on the web as well all this hashtag Team Grimmy stuff 
again, it's exactly the right thing they should be doing. You know, I've noticed that they've been promoing ahead to him interviewing Justin Bieber with little video clips of him talking to him. Yeah, that's what Daybreak does when Justin Bieber's on Daybreak. You know, they don't just play the interview. They play it for about five days before and then they put a bit of content on the rain and then they put it on the website. And radio is really bad at that usually. Um, But I think that's exactly the kind of thing they need to be doing to get that audience engaged. I think they're doing all that really well as well. So uh, you can hear Nick Grimshaw, of course, on Radio 1 between 6.30am and 10. And hopefully he'll plug this podcast next time he's on air. Uh, Anything for you, Nick? And we finish this week, of course, with the uh, most eagerly anticipated quiz since Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? It's the uh, Media Monkey Quiz. Three questions this week, folks. So fingers in your buzzers. If you could reach behind you to pull up the uh, almost uh, incredibly high-tech buzzing... uh, Wow, I had no idea how high-tech until I came. Indeed, yes. Marks and Spencers, if I can... uh, Other buzzers are available from High Street. Oh, I thought I I wanted the iPhone 5, but I think I've changed my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Right, first question. Which music magazine celebrated its 60th birthday this week? Oh, well, I think that was man. It must be the enemy. It was the enemy, yes. Uh, which enemy was created when the Accordion Times merged with the Musical Express to create the new Musical Express. Apparently it was a knife edge. It could have been the new Accordion Times, but thank goodness they didn't go for that title. Then it would be Nat for short. <laughs> Uh, it would well very quick bonus point as well bonus point have you seen <laughs> hey have you seen what's in the gnat this week <laughs> um, it would be very small wouldn't it if it was the gnat uh, oh another thin probably issue. be better if it was be called the gnat thinner than, thinner than the free timeout. Uh, question number two uh, how many is older uh, let's, no let's rephrase it how many is younger is Nick Grimshaw than Chris Moyles Ooh. and well, this man again but this is a guess so Jason gets the point if I'm wrong 13 wrong no uh, 11. 11. 10. Oh. But still, it's one all because you were closest. So yeah. that, that uh, generates a, a sense of jeopardy for question number three. <laughs> Why was Channel 4 on a high this week? Channel 4 on a high. Oh, that's Phipps. Uh, due to this new series they've just run on the effect of drugs. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Drugs yeah. Live. Yeah. Drugs so, Live. Yeah, yeah. Lily yeah. Allen's father, previously known as Keith Allen, uh, was among those uh, taking drugs. Yeah. But I'm guessing Did you guys two didn't million, see it. You said two, two million viewers. Yeah. That's, so, yeah. I didn't tune in because when I've seen Keith Allen on the TV before, I've never thought, you know, what would be good is to give him a drug where he thinks he's <laughs> invincible and he can say whatever he likes. <laughs> I've thought very much the opposite of that. Well, we'll be doing the same on uh, next week's show. See if you can notice the difference. For now, my thanks to Mr. Jason Phipps, Sonia Warbinner, Mr. Ollie Mann, <laughs> Sonia Warbinner. My name is John Plunkett, non-Sonia Warbinner, but this show did win a Sonia before I presented it. You can say whatever you want about either of my guests or the content or me on our Facebook wall or our blog. Or you can tweet me at JohnPlunkett149. This was Media Talk. The producer this week was Mr. Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.